Welcome to the Mike on Watch podcast. This is actually a very unique podcast today because for the first time ever, Max and I are recording from different cities. Uh, Max is currently on tour. Uh, I'm in Toronto. Max, what's going on? Where are you in the United States right now? I am in uh, the city of brotherly love. I'm in Philadelphia right now. Woo. Yeah. Before we get to that, uh, we have a great episode for you today. Uh, Our guest today is... Toronto Maple Leafs assistant GM, Kyle Dubas. And the reason Kyle Dubas is such a sort of fascinating guy to talk to is he got hired to be the Leafs assistant GM at 28 years old. So he's a bit of a whiz kid, and uh, his journey has been fascinating to get to that sort of really elite executive role. Uh, But before that, Max... How's tour been, man? What's been going on? I feel like I haven't seen you. Tour's been good. But before we get to that, the, the one question that we didn't ask, and I, I don't know if it's public record or not, we should, I should probably just look it up, is uh, how much does Kyle Dubas make? You know? <laughs> yeah, I know we were... It's like, this guy is our age. And when you think about it, it's like the Toronto Maple Leafs are the most uh, like lucrative NHL franchise in, like, in the history of hockey. And... He's like the assistant to the general manager. He's a very important role in the organization. He's got to be making more money than just about anybody we know, right? It is. It's such a funny thing, like what somebody makes and, and, and the curiosity that goes along with that. But uh, did you want to ask Kyle that? Uh, yeah, I kind of did. And I feel like, <laughs> you know what, I, you know, because he came by the recording studio when we were making our record in the fall and we got to hang out with him. And then we hung out with him again when we were doing the pod. So I think on the third time, I'll ask him. So if he invites us to like a hockey game or something like that, he already gave us tickets to a hockey game, which was very nice of him. Uh, but I, I think the third time, get like three drinks in me and I'll be like, come on, what are you, what are you taking in? <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you're on the road. I, we, we talk sparingly trying to save it for the pod. What's it been like? How you been doing? It's been going pretty good. Uh, the tour started, I'm trying to think of highlights cause we've been on the road for a couple weeks. We were in Austin, Texas for South by Southwest. Um, our friend, uh, the nut, uh, that we can, we'll refer to him as, uh, we won't even mention his real name because, uh, we actually had to take down a podcast last week because uh, we got him into, oh, well, we could have got him into trouble. But uh, <laughs> he was down in South by with us, uh, and he was kind of exhibiting the behavior of every kind of, uh, I don't know how you say it, uh, asshole <laughs> marketing guy. <laughs> you know, those people that like uh, aren't actually you know pouring their hearts out performing, but they're the kind of people just sort of judging and if there's a good moment for their social media account they'll be uh taking lots of photos (laughs) and so uh i have a great photo of him i'm in the crowd watching mastercraft perform and there's i and he's side stage because he's the kind of guy that gets to go side stage anywhere he goes and uh he's side stage and he's taking as many he was literally taking photos for about i don't know 15 minutes straight. It was probably all going to a Snapchat account. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so he, he was in fine form in Austin. Uh, <laughs> was that too mean, Mike? Was that being too mean? We're going to have to cut it out, I'm sure, but hey. Okay, okay. well, just warming up. Uh, <laughs> no, no. But, uh, yeah, South By was, was fun. Um, but we had a couple days off in New York this past weekend because we played on Friday night. I called... My girlfriend, Lauren, I was like, Lauren, I'm going to fly you down. I have two days off in New York. Let's do it. And she said, no, I have to study. So then I went to my ne- next in line, Dan Hamilton, my dear friend. And uh, he had a very busy work weekend, so he couldn't come. You were number three on the list, Mike. I just want to let you know. Oh, hey. Yeah. I was wondering how many names you were going to go through until we got to the point where you messaged me to come to New York. No, you were literally in third place, which is pretty good. You know. <laughs> Trust me, I thought good and hard about it. Well, it ended up, um, I met up with Mike, 
our guitar player, and Molly, uh, his girlfriend, or wife, I guess. They're married now. Jesus. Um, and we had, ended up actually going to a really cool like dance club in Manhattan, like on the Lower East Side. And it was a very like sort of good-looking, rich, like 20-something crowd. I was sort of mesmerized by the whole thing. It was, uh, it was, uh, but I don't feel like, uh, did you feel like you were in an episode of Gossip Girl? Kind of, I kind of did. And, but I also missed you guys so much because, uh, this is the kind of place that the, the champagne boys would have ruled. I could just imagine the, uh, the sort of uh, the bits our friend Julian uh, would be doing in the club. <laughs> Julian, for our listeners, he, he does this thing where he pretends to, to smoke a cigarette, uh, and then he gives he offers the, the the fake cigarette to like some girl, and the girl like will say, "No, I don't smoke," but not realizing that it's he doesn't actually have a cigarette in his hand. <laughs> it's all it's all mime. It's all mime. Yeah, he, he's the best physical comedian that I know. But anyway, so what the point the the part of the story I want to get to though is that Sunday rolls around. And I was very tired. I was very sluggish the whole day. But uh, I go, I'm wandering around Manhattan, and we have a line on, a possible line on some Rihanna tickets because she's playing Barclays Center on Sunday night, right? And I'm very excited about the possibility of getting to go to the show. It's about 5 o'clock, and I just find out that we got tickets to go to this thing. But I'm so tired. I'm like a little bit hungover. Um, and my phone is at about 15%. And I'm just like, I would kill a man for a nap right now. You know when you really just need like <laughs> 20 minutes of shut eye? And I just start racking my brain thinking about like, do I know anybody who lives like in Greenwich Village that I could just text to go nap on their couch? Which <laughs> sounds kind of crazy. But, but uh, I was like, I don't know anybody in this part of Manhattan. And then I walk up to this corner and there's um, this, those Chinese uh, massage places. So I go in. I'm like, this could work. So I go in. I look at the rates. It's like $35 for 45 minutes. I'm like, this is amazing. I could have bought a T-shirt or something. Or I could get a massage and charge my phone. And so and have a nap. And had a nap. So I did it. And it was the best move I made the whole weekend. It was amazing. This little old Asian lady like just dug her elbows into my back for about 45 minutes. It kind of hurt a little bit. But I charged my phone. <laughs> I closed my eyes. And it was, it was just incredible. I, I don't quite understand. Like what's the stigma with rug, rub and tugs? Is that like – is that a – and this is a Chinese – like I don't know that – but, but, but anyway, if I'm one of these people that are running one of these establishments, I'd be totally insulted – by the insinuation that, you know, there's um, unsuitable behavior happening in these places <laughs> because they literally just provide a great service at a very reasonable rate. It's way cheaper than if I went to some fancy-ass spa or something, uh, some hoity-toity place. You're talking about the hand job? <laughs> no. <laughs> Come on. Um, and um, anyway, so that totally, like, you know, I got a total second win from that. We go to the concert. And uh, Rihanna was amazing. And also, I got to say, going to a concert in Brooklyn was such a treat. You know, seeing anybody, I think, in New York City and you get to sort of collection of like every kind of person and everybody's like dressed up for the show and everybody looks amazing who's like going to the concert. Um, Miguel, the R&B superstar uh, singer, he just like walked by us. Oh, Travis Scott, who's like an upcoming rapper, he came into the crowd during his I saw set. your Snapchat. I know. It, it and he was literally, exciting. he was touching me. I was literally that close. And he was going, <laughs> and there was like this 16 year old, like white boy kid who was rapping along to every lyric. He knew every song. And Travis Scott must have seen him from the stage. And he came out and he made that kid's life. The kid was like literally 
like the happiest person I've ever seen. So uh, I don't know. The whole thing, uh, our New York weekend was uh, was pretty magical. Sounds like it turned out pretty good. I mean, at the start of this story, you found you sounded very like homesick for the Champagne Boys. Like you, you know, you seemed a little melancholy. You know, you were kind of down. You were at this club. You kind of missed us. You wanted us to be there. And by the end, it looks like you ended up having a pretty uh, exciting time. Yeah, I had a rub and tug in a Rihanna concert. Though. <laughs> <laughs> um, well. Max, on this episode, we talked to Kyle Dubas. That's right. Our boy. Kid Wonder. Boy Wonder. Boy Wonder. All the way from Sault Ste. Marie to the big time here in Toronto. Yeah. He's, uh, his, uh, he has a, he's got another connection because he's married to somebody who grew up with Shane, our very own pop culture aficionado. Yeah. And Kyle is doing really good things. I mean, we went and did this interview at MLSC, like in their offices there at uh, Bay Street where the ACC is. Yeah. He was... Uh, he, I know he's a very busy guy and he travels a lot. So it took us a few months to sort of lock down this interview, but he was very, very gracious with his time. And the thing about Kyle is because he's been so sort of successful so young, like, I mean, as you'll hear in the interview, he was the GM of, uh, you know, uh, a minor league team in Sault Ste. Marie, Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds at 25. And then he gets this assistant GM job at 28. He was like a player agent right out of school in his early 20s. He's sort of, um, you go, oh man, how is a guy like this young, this successful? And I think when you listen to the interview, you sort of, you sort of go, oh, you know, he gets it. You know, he's sort of, he's very smart. I imagine every interview he's ever gone into, he's absolutely killed. I know. That's the thing. After we had the, after we left the office, we're like, I, that guy will get any job ever. Cause he's a kind of a handsome guy, but kind of handsome in like a coach Taylor kind of way. Like <laughs> he doesn't even know he's handsome. Like, and he doesn't, he's not show showy about it. He's like, he doesn't act like a handsome guy, but you kind of like look at him. You're like, ah, this guy's a handsome mother. <laughs> and he's also very well spoken. <laughs> uh, and yeah. And yeah, very well spoken. He, he's the kind of guy uh, you could really trust with information. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like if I told, I was like, Kyle, I got a secret, and you can't say anything to anybody, you know he would never tell anybody. Absolutely. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. You'd- like me, if you tell me something, like I'm, you're like, no, he's the kind of guy that might tell somebody else. Yes. I'm talking about me. Oh, big time. <laughs> oh, Matt, you're the biggest gossip I know besides my brother. Well, well, let's get to the interview. Let's get to it. Taking on a role like this. Sure. At a relatively young age, I mean, I imagine it would involve a lot of sort of like maturity and sort of responsibility uh, to take on a role like this. Do you find that you were sort of always naturally that way or is that something that you've had to like grow towards in this role? I, I think I've had the fortune of coming from where I came from in Sault Ste. Marie. Um, people often, it, it's a hard thing to explain, but the role there, uh, there was so much more attention individually on on me because the staff of that team is so small so the city is is very isolated there's not a whole lot around it and there's only one show in town it's the greyhounds so there wherever you go every single place that you go everybody knows who you are and everybody has an opinion about the team so going into that situation i was 25 and being from there my whole family living there you know and then everybody knowing you and everywhere you go, there was no way to escape it. And our first year was uh, was a failure, to put it mildly. Um, the team got off to a good start, and we totally collapsed. And during that time, I, I learned so much about how to operate under a, an intense microscope. And I guess you mature and you grow as a professional in doing that. Going through it at the time, you hated every day. It sucked. 
Uh, it wasn't a lot of fun. Everywhere you go, people are on you about the team not performing well, the team um, being a joke. The team had missed the playoffs for three of the four years before I went there, or two of the three years in a league where in a conference where eight of the ten teams make it. So when you miss, so we missed my first year there as the GM, and the patience had been taken up already. There was no patience left in the fan base. So it was heavy scrutiny, and because of that, I think I, I know I grew a lot as a professional and matured as a as a manager. Um, so that's that was without that experience, I don't know that I'm well suited to come here. Right. I mean, with that kind of scrutiny, I always wonder this. Uh, you know, with GMs or anyone in sort of a leadership sure. position, a team performing poorly, do you take that personally? Even though you know you're not one of these athletes on the ice or on the court. I mean, how much is, how much do you carry that? Big, you carry even when even when your team is really good and you're in a tight game or you lose and you leave. You, there's a burden that that follows you around. There's nothing better than when your team is playing well and you're winning and everywhere you go, people are excited. They want to talk to you. They want to tell you how great the team is, how happy they are. And there's nothing worse than when you feel like you're disappointing. In in management, you think you feel like you're disappointing everybody. You feel like you've disappointed the players by not having that, them set up for success, the coaches. And probably the worst is when you feel like you're disappointing the fan base or the community. And in my first year in Sault Ste. Marie, that's what it felt like. And here in Toronto, it's different because I came in knowing that it was going to be a long, long-term project. It wasn't going to be anything that was going to de deliver instant gratification for myself for the fan base and for the organization. And the fan base seemed prepared for that. I feel like that, you know, they were ready for sort of a teardown or the, at least a rebuild. When when you walk around in Toronto now, whenever we go anywhere and people, for one, not as many people recognize you here as when you're in Sault Ste. Marie doing that job. So there's a little bit more anonymity to it. Sure. Um, there's a certain place where you go where everybody is all over you all the time, which is fine. But here people will come up to you when they talk to you and it's not, you know, the Leafs are brutal or you guys need to fix this. It's, they'll come up to you. Anyone who comes up to me has, I've never had a person say a negative thing and anyone that's come up to me has said, stay the course we're, or we're, you know, we're in it. Uh, we understand what you're doing. Don't, don't go, uh, don't try to expedite the plan, do it right. I've never really seen anything like it because when I was debating when my wife and I were deciding whether we were going to come here, that was the main negative that everybody had that, that, that I talked to was the fans don't have the patience in Toronto. And it's been completely the opposite. So the fans are not only, not only patient, they want us to do it right and want us to do it uh, for as long as it takes to get it right and build a contending team. So that's, been, that's made it easier in terms of the pressure here. Growing up in Sault Ste. Marie, mm -hmm. Did you play a lot of sports? So I, I played um, hockey, ba baseball, football, um, basically anything that I could play. I did most of my my family was a hockey family. My fa my grandfather coached the the Greyhounds in the '60s, and my father worked for the team um, in the '80s. My sister still works for the team now. So there's you know three generations of our family that have been involved with the team. A lot of my time was spent playing hockey. I played until I was 14. Um, I had some concussion issues when I was 14. Wow. And I had been uh, I had been working for the Greyhounds from when I was 11 years old. I was the, from 11 to when I was 14, I did the sticks and the water bottles. And it was, you know, when you grow up in Sault Ste. Marie and you get a chance to do that for the Greyhounds, I guess the best comparable I think in sports would be 
like being able to be the ball boy for the Packers in Green Bay because sure. it's a small town. It's all anyone thinks about and talks about. So that was a, a lot of fun. I got to have a lot of great experiences doing that. And when I had to stop playing hockey, I started to uh, – Dave Mayville was the general manager at the time, and then Craig Hartsberg, who coaches for Columbus now, and they started to have me do more hockey-related things. And I did that all the way through high school. So I go to school. My grandmother grandfather would pick me up, drive me to the rink, pick me up at 7.30. I'd go home, do homework, and then do the same thing the next day. So you leave then. You go to Brock. Yeah. So how long were you there? I was there for four years. So when I was leaving to go to Brock, I'd worked for the, for the team for six years. So for the Greyhounds for six years. When I was leaving to go to Brock, by pure happenstance, our scout in that area had resigned from his position. So I was 17 at the time when I was going to Brock. And our scout in that area resigned uh, to, to focus more on his team he was coaching or what have you. So I had been around the team for so long and been in all the draft meetings. And Dave Torrey, the general manager at the time, who now scouts for LA, uh, came to me and said, "You know, you know, are you, would this be something that you're interested in?" And of course, I said yes. So Can you say it in a higher voice, like, yes, yeah, sir. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Your seventeen-year-old voice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so it wasn't. It was you know the first year I saw, I lived at, on campus and you. It was when junior B players could still play and be eligible for the OHL draft. So I would go to the St. Catharines and Thorold games, and then the next year. Um, in the summer, worked for the Greyhounds and worked at a golf course and saved up and bought a car. And my scouting area increased, and I did that all through university. So I went to school full time and did that job full time as well. So how does that lead to the back to Sault Ste. Marie? Uh, so at the end of my uh, at the end of my time at university, I was always really interested in the agent business, um, and I got to know a lot of different agents and was offered a position with an agency in Burlington Uptown Sports and uh, so I took that position and um, lived in St. Catharines for one year and commuted there and then moved to Hamilton and um, so I did that for five years. Personally I started to feel like I had missed being on the team side of of the business of the of hockey. I uh, When you're in the agent business you're recruiting players and you're representing them and you're you're spending a lot of time as a counselor and a psychologist for them and trying to help them improve and get better, but there's no winning and losing. You you win when your your clients make the NHL and you get paid. And it wasn't really, for me, that's not really what gets me excited. I mean, right. get, for me, uh, I get excited about building things and building organizations and, and winning. And so at that point, it was a great experience where we got to travel all around the world in hockey and uh, we opened up uh, a, an operation in Stockholm and, and one in uh, out west in Calgary. So the business grew and it was fun. I got to learn how to recruit in a business that's very tough to recruit. and um, So there was a lot of positives from it. I learned a lot about the business side of hockey and, and different things and, and negotiating skills and so on and so forth. But there wasn't the winning and losing or the everyday passion that goes into that. And, sure. Um, just at the time where, where I was starting to you know, really think of whether it was what I wanted to do, I, I'd come home from that trip and put my bags down and I got an email on my phone from the owners in Sault Ste. Marie saying that they had let go of their general manager and my name had come up as being mentioned for someone who might be a good fit for the job, they were going to go through a thorough process, would I be interested in coming and interviewing? Um, so I thought about it, talked to a lot of people. I didn't 
I was 25 at the time, and the second uh, correspondence from them was, well, you have a uphill battle because of your age, and you know there's some concerns amongst our board of directors that you're you'd be able to do it uh, at that age, especially since the team had been struggling, as I said, missed the playoffs two of the three years before, and the fan base wanted an established person, so on and so forth. Um, so I went back and forth between whether to apply or not, or whether to say yes to the interview or not, and ultimately I got some uh, advice from a friend of mine in hockey, Ryan Jankowski, he's now with Hockey Canada, and he said, you know, if you if you don't go up and, and interview for that job, it's a team that means more to you than, than any other team, you'll always regret not going up and interviewing, even if you, but if you... And if you get it, it could be one of the greatest experiences of your life. If you don't interview, you're always going to look back and regret that you didn't give yourself the chance. So I decided to interview, prepared uh, meticulously for it, went in, had my interview, left the interview when they they had nine or ten still to go, and I had no idea how, how it went at all. It was the first time in my life where I walked out of something and had no idea whether it went good or bad or had any inkling whatsoever. Um, two days later, they called back, wanting to know if I'd go up for a second interview, and at the second interview, they offered me the position. Did you find that those concerns were founded, that you know your peers maybe didn't want to deal with you because you're a 25-year-old kid? Like, was that, yeah. was that something that sort of manifested itself? I found right away that there was the, the veteran managers in the league that rightfully, and I, I don't look back on it and, and hold any grudge, they were, they were testing me right away to see whether they could whether they could rip us off in a deal or whether they could take advantage of it. And, and I think that that's what they should have done. If they wouldn't have done that, I would doubt their ability as a, as sure. a manager. I mean, you're, you're competing in, in that league. There's 20 teams. So you're competing against the 19 other managers to manage your team best and to build your team as, as well as possible. So if you can win a trade or you can win a deal, as much as people say sometimes, well, we want this to be a win-win for both teams. Nobody ever really means that. <laughs> they want they want it to be a win for they them. And, win the trade. and if the other team does okay, that's fine, but they should they should do slightly <laughs> less fine. Yeah. So, I mean, it's fascinating because you start so young, you know, from, from working with the Greyhounds, like you're saying, you know, at 17 you're scouting and you're also at Brock, and then you get a job at 25. I guess along the way, to be so career-oriented, you know, from such a young age, did you find it difficult to toggle back and forth? I mean, did you, did you go out for beers? Did you have, like, an active social life? Or did you have to give up and sacrifice some of that to be so successful so young? I, I think that certainly some of it was sacrificed. I don't think I had as much fun as other people. Um, but I certainly still had fun, like, it, it, at Brock. Like, I, for example, I would, I would do, I would have class, and then I would go to a game or whatever, and it would be over at 10, and then I would go to wherever all the guys were. Yeah, <laughs> go to, you know, on Thursday night, it was easy, because Thor, the Thorough Blackhawks played Thursday night. Then I would go to wherever all my friends were, getting ready to go to the campus bar, Isaac's, and then yeah. go to Isaac's, and then when you got up Friday, you got up Friday. So it was trying to... Trying to balance that all out was tough, and there were certainly a lot of things that I that I missed. That, um, but I don't really regret. Like I, my my greatest friends now today are still people like some of my closest friends in high school and university, and I talk to them every day basically. So I, I don't think anything was lost to that. I think a lot of my my best friends understood the way that um, that I was. It, it was it was hockey. It wasn't like I, I wanted to be a banker or economist or something like that that I mean it was everyone in Canada by and large loves 
hockey or I love sports. Sure. So, no matter what sport it is. So if you have a chance to progress in it, I think that's that's optimal versus some any other type of career that you're not as passionate about. So you're in the Sioux. Mm-hmm. You're doing a great job as the GM there. How do the conversations start with the you know almighty Toronto Maple Leafs? Um, we had had some uh, other discussions with other uh, teams in the spring. That uh, was 2014. When and you say discussions with teams, like you were actively looking to make a move? I wasn't. I've, the one thing I've never, ever done that I don't believe in is I've never actively looked to move, no matter where. I didn't look to leave from the Sioux to go into the agent business. I didn't look to go. I didn't actively chase the Sioux job from my spot as a player agent, and I never, ever approached any NHL team when I was in the Sioux. So I think because of my age, uh, it, was in, it was always sort of... Um, it was a double-edged sword. It was intriguing to people because you were young and doing well, but on the other side of it, and I think rightfully so, people questioned whether you could be effective at that age. And I had always gone through that. So when I was a scout, then when I was an agent, then when I went to the Sioux, and then subsequently coming here, it's been four times where I've had people say, well, he's too young. I don't know that he can do that job. So I've never really, knowing I already had that against me, I just also never believed in chasing other jobs while you're, while you're doing what you're doing. I think the minute that you start to do that, you eliminate, you eliminate some of your effectiveness in the job that you're in. So in the, in the spring of that year, I was approached by two other teams, and I had an, every year my contract in the Sioux, it was just kind of boilerplate stuff in the country. You had until July 1st if you wanted to move up a level. So not a lateral move to another OHL team, but if you moved up to the AHL or the NHL. And our team, we had built it to the point where that was gonna, it was my, going to my fourth year there, uh, I had a great relationship with Sheldon Keefe, our coach, who now coaches the Marlies, and decided, my wife and I were getting married on July the 6th, and, and we just decided that for, you know, for the, the location of the teams and everything we had going on, how good this, we thought the team in the Sioux was going to be, that other opportunities would come along. So we decide that we're going to return to the Sioux. We go away, we leave on July 2nd for our wedding. We have the rehearsal on July 4th, and as we're walking back from our rehearsal party to... Uh, to the hotel room, uh, maybe it was the bar, that was actually, <laughs> uh, with, with our friends, uh, I get an email on my phone from Brendan Shanahan. I had never met Brendan Shanahan before, never talked to him. Email said, uh, hi Kyle, um, I've, your name has been brought up to me by some people in hockey. Uh, I'd like to you know, have a discussion with you in the coming days if possible. So I at first thought it was some type of a joke, like I don't even know Brendan Shannon. I was obviously aware that he had left the league and come to the Leafs and didn't really expect something like that. It was kind of out of the blue. And um, so I responded back to him the next day and said, you know, uh, I'm actually away right now getting married. Um, I get back. We're in Mexico. I get back uh, on the 9th. He said, can I meet with you on the 10th at 5 o'clock? It's the end of our development camp. So I went and met with him just and had no idea what it was really about. I talked to my wife and she said, well, it's, we're in Hamilton. It's in Toronto. Why don't you just go and just go and do it and see what he has to say? You've never met him before. And I said, oh, you know. So I responded back and said, you know, sure, I'll come and meet. And I thought it was just going to be basically a discussion. I thought he would have questions about our use of analytics or the sure. common things that people like would pick ask. Pick a brain. Yeah. So I went and met with him at the Mastercard Center in Etobicoke and started at five. And I got home at one in the morning. I left there at midnight and. Um, you know, by the end of the conversation, I'd realized that 
it was more than just a conversation of someone trying to pick your brain or get to know something. He had, you know, said that, you know, he didn't know what was going to happen with their organization, but, you know, he might be interested in, in, uh, in seeing if I was available to come in. And I said, oh, you know, I didn't expect anything more to come of it. Then the next day I got another email from Brendan uh, and then began meeting with him and Dave Nonis and, um, and then got to the point where they had said, you know, hey, we're going to, we would like you to join the organization. Well, the issue with that was that my out clause with the Sioux ended July 1st, so they needed permission from Sault Ste. Marie, who would then be left without a general manager in July, uh, in the middle of July. And mm, at that point, it went from being the excitement of being approached. I mean, my wife's from Hamilton, my family's all in Sault Ste. Marie. There's no easier team to work for for us in terms of our families and our friends and where they live. So it went from being the excitement of that to that it could be a possibility to then a couple of days later, I really had a lot of, uh, it was a really emotional time because I, I then began to deal with the part of leaving the people in the suit. So we put together the whole staff there, all the players that had come there, and the team was about to be really, really good. They ended up finishing first in the league last year in the regular season. and. Knowing that I brought all the people there, I started to feel bad about leaving them at that time and got to the point of saying, well, if opportunities like this are presenting themselves now, then if we have another really good year, I'm sure that those opportunities will be there again. And then you get to, in your head, well, what if they aren't? And you pass it up and you go through this whole back and forth. So there was a lot of reflecting and I couldn't really tell anybody. Brendan, the one thing with him was they didn't want anybody, anyone, anyone at all to know. So the, the uh, chairman of the board of directors and the Sioux knew I knew, Brennan knew, Dave Nonis knew, and my wife. So it was basically, I had nobody else that I could... You couldn't lean on I anybody. Could, I could lean to or talk to. So it was my wife and I, and, you know, she was supportive of whatever I decided. It didn't matter to her. She just wanted me to be happy. Um, so then it was a huge back and forth internally as to whether to do it. So um, about a week later, I met with Dave and Brendan again, and they offered me the job. And I didn't know at the time that they were also going to be moving other people out. So they offered me the job and um, the position of assistant general manager and a contract. And I had to go home that night and, and think about it. And, you know, I, I had come to the decision that it was probably the best move for our, our family and, and for me. I thought that the team in the suit would be okay. And they were fine with me helping them transition to a new general manager uh, for the next couple of months. And uh, so I, I took the I took the position, and then uh, the next day came back and was and they they announced it, and we've been it's been kind of just rolling on ever since. You also negotiated some Raptors season tickets too, right, into your deal? Leafs Raptors, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> whatever we can whatever we can get. Yeah, you told so, me that. I was like smart man. Yeah, That's good. Yeah. Was the reaction sort of like with your family and friends universally like were people like holy shit? Well, none, nobody in my family or any of my friends had any idea. So, the morning of before it's announced was probably the craziest morning I've ever experienced. So they said that they were going to announce it at at noon because I said if, if so that night. I met with Dave and, and Brendan downtown and was leaving and driving back. So I called my wife and explained to her what, the, what was offered. And then, you know, we, I didn't know whether I was going to take it. Nobody, the only people that knew in the sewer were the owners. Well, they're, I had to call them late at night and say, I've been offered the position. I said, well, you're going to take it. I said, I really don't know. And at this time, they were also, because it was mid-July, late July, they are now pushing me for an answer too. 
they gave permission for me to, to speak to Toronto. They gave, Brendan had called there and Brendan and Dave had called there. But now they're pushing me for an answer too because they don't want to be left with me delaying. And so I've, I'm feeling I do the right thing and make a quick decision on a you know, life-changing uh, life changing move. So I talked to Shannon, my wife, and um, decided to do it. So late at night that Monday, I call the, the owner in the Sioux and tell him. And then he says, can you call the PR guy and let him know? And so they were going to, I said to, to Brendan and Dave, I just need some time in the morning. I need to talk to my family. I need to talk to... Before they hear about it I the need news. to talk to the staff in the Sioux. I don't want them finding it anywhere else. So it was going to be announced here at noon. And so I started to drive in at 10. I was planning on calling everybody on my drive in to Toronto from uh, Hamilton. And Brendan called me in a rush saying, stuff is starting to leak out on our end. We're going to release it in like 30 minutes. And I said, I haven't talked to a single person. I said, you need to give me some sort of time. He's like, well, start calling everybody as soon as you can. So I'm <laughs> trying to reach my family, trying to reach all the staff in the Sioux and so on and so forth. And then as I was driving in, they, they released it. And so I was like, I was on the Gardener kind of coming into Toronto and my phone just Explode. went crazy. <laughs> and uh, life's been a bit... Not ever since, but it's, it's all good. You get a lot of asks for tickets? Uh, I think my wife gets more than anybody. I, I, largely, I go, it doesn't, I don't get a, you know, nothing directly to me, but my wife and my my family and my friends get a lot from... I think Shane on the show actually has asked your wife, because uh, Shane... Came to a, he came to a Raptors game against Brooklyn last uh, last month. Yeah, yes. that's right. That's <laughs> yeah. A lot's made of analytics and sort of like old guard, new guard. In your role, how have you found sort of, I guess, the outlook from maybe more traditional coaches and uh, GMs, the older hockey guard, and, and is there that divide? Do you see that? Because people seem to write about it a lot. I um, I have, the, I guess, the benefit of being somebody that's grown up on the scouting and hockey side of it that became interested. So I started with that before analytics was anything in hockey. And so it was, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s. It wasn't even a discussion, really. It was baseball that where, where it became the, it became so uh, progressive and, and pushed it forward. Um, so being a big baseball fan, I would always follow the various progressions in, in analysis and, and what was being done with the data from, from baseball. So... I got the opportunity to see that on a first-hand basis all through as, as, as that dialogue and that debate started in baseball, which is now you know 20 years ago where that was starting and happening. And so in hockey, I grew up in scouting and in hockey operations and had always had an interest in analytics from different areas, and I, I thought it was interesting and I thought it was great and I thought it added a lot to everything that could be done. So I had no one... In, in, to just to go back to the Sioux, knowing all the hockey people there, and then was able to bring in the different things that I'd learned on on analytics and had had observed and had, had proven to be successful. But there is still, I think, in every sport, even in baseball, there's still a big divide between um, between you know the new school and old school. And I think it'll always be there in, in some regards, right? Until the new school become the old school. 
Right, and I think even then, because of the way that, that sports are going, you'll have newer newer things that will come in after that, and it'll it'll always be new versus old. It'll, I don't think that bridge will ever be. None of that bridge will ever be um, completely uh, there to have everyone just going back and forth. But I think that's a good. That's one of the best parts about sports is you have people who believe. Uh, in some cases, two totally different things about the same player, the same style of player, the same mechanism within the game. And if you don't become firmly entrenched on on either side, you can you can stay rational and see the positives of, of both ends. And that's always what um, I've tried to do. And I know a lot of people say, well, he's just a, an analytics guy. But I grew up completely opposite of and was trained completely opposite of analytics. And I just found great value in using data and objective um, information, objective statistics to help aid in, in decision making. I think it's extremely valuable. Uh, it's it's for me. It's I found it's really helped any decisions that have been made in Sault Ste. Marie here in Toronto. Uh, I don't believe that it's it, you should solely use just analytics I think there's there's so many different things in every sport and people say well hockey's different from baseball and basketball you know of course it's every all the sports are different they all have their different intricacies and and way that they're played and, and way to value different talents and abilities but if you can use all of the information be able to sort out what's uh, what's good and what's bad and then combine it all together I think I think it's it's foolish not to do so and and I find huge value in using uh, data and analytics in, in hockey and, and other sports that, that are more progressive than than ours have, they're a lot further down the road. We're just trying to play catch up. And, and even here with the Leafs, we're trying to catch other teams in our own league that are a bit ahead of us. But, but it, that's the fun part. Um, I mean, you have a pretty cool job right now. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, where do you go from here? Do you, do you, is the goal to be running your own team sort of solely in the future? Um, I, I don't... I, I think everyone, I get asked that a lot, maybe more than anything, but my, I think every day when I come here, my goal is just to, to do the best that I can to stay focused on, where I've, I've had success in, in my life is when I'm really just focused on what I'm doing right now and really focused on doing the absolute best that I could do now and not worrying about what the next thing is going to be. Uh, that's when I, I felt that I've been at my best and then those other things have always followed. So. When I was first in the Sioux, then when I was an agent, then when I was in the Sioux again, I found that any time that I started to think about a different job or something off in the future, I started to become uh, ineffective in the job that I was in. And and I see people now, and, I, and a lot of, I'll talk to a lot of younger people that are in hockey or in different sports or in business, and they're, I find that when I talk to them, they're distracted by... Of what what's in the future, rather than rather than what's the main thing. Where they want to be, not right where now. they are right now. Right, and I've i found that even in working with different people in different um, in the different organizations that I've been in, the people who are always worried about getting to the top of the mountain, no matter what that mountain may be for them, maybe in scouting, maybe in coaching, maybe in management or in PR or business operations or whatever it may be those people I find they always stumble the most or they make mistakes or they don't endear themselves to their their direct report because they're people know when you're not locked into your job and they can sense it and so when you're chasing and you're distracted and you're outside of what your responsibilities are I've never seen anybody that's able to do that and still be elite at what they're doing in the here and now and so I've I've learned from that and, and seen that and I'm very 
cognizant of never really thinking about that. It doesn't, for whatever reason, it doesn't really excite me to think about what might be in the future. I'm worried about my responsibilities now uh, with the Maple Leafs and trying and knowing that if, if I do my absolute best that I can here, whether it's with the Maple Leafs or somebody else, that uh, greater responsibility will be there in the future. But if I don't do that now with the Maple Leafs, those opportunities aren't going to come. So I just try to stay really grounded here today and do the best I can here. Welcome to what Max likes to call the dessert. Uh, but as you know, if you've been listening to this episode, Max is not here with us. He's off touring somewhere. So it's just Shane and I uh, right now. Shane, what's up? Uh, I went to Share Club. Oh, okay. Uh, it's funny you bring that up because uh, now all three members of the pod have been. I, I got to go first, luckily, with my friend AJ. Uh, and then last week, you heard Max talk about going to the Share Club uh, with his friend Dan. And Shane, you went to the Share Club. Uh, again, I should yeah. say the reason we all get to go to Share Club is because we have a friend, the nut that works at MLSE, and he's been kind enough to let us go into this very exclusive VIP club that has been uh, created by Drake. So I asked you about the Share Club. Yeah. And when you went, you were like, oh, you know, it's kind of like it wasn't packed. And you're like, they come around with these sliders and, you know, you get to eat free food. Yeah, they have like free appetizers. And you said, uh, you know, the drinks aren't cheap, but they're not super expensive. Yeah. So I'm like, I don't want to spend any money if I'm going to the share club, but I will, you know, save money on dinner and eat, <laughs> eat the sliders and everything. Because I was like, hey, who needs to eat dinner when all these Free sliders appetizers are, are coming out. Okay. And I'm not really going to be drinking because the wallet strings are tight right now, just to make up an expression. And then... <laughs> That old gem. I had an expression. I hate when the wallet strings are tight, yeah. So I t- Alex is like, okay, I know drinks are going to be expensive. So Your she girlfriend? Co- yeah, my girlfriend comes over with a thing of vodka to pre-drink before we go because we're not going to be buying any drinks. Oh, smart. So you guys are pre-drinking the share club so you can save a bit of money. Yeah. And I tell Alex, I tell my girlfriend, I say, you wear your hottest club outfit because I want to look like I'm kind of a baller. So I'm going to wear a suit jacket and look like, you know, like a kind of a douchey club owner type because I want to blend in and get the full club experience. Yeah. And by the way, I've never had the full club experience. You and our friends, we never get bottle service. We're always cheapskates. We never. <laughs> so I wanted to actually live the experience. So girlfriend looks like crazy hot blonde arm candy i'm wearing my suit jacket looking like like perfect like young douche like stock market dude i'm like perfect the stage is set to have a funny fun interesting night where nothing could go wrong so i show up and uh i get ushered in by this uh, this man i go i'm shane cunningham he goes oh shane and uh this is I presume. Oh, jeez. Instantly, I'm like, okay, that's my ex-girlfriend's name, so I'm suspicious, and I'm thinking the nut kind of set me up in a way, because he knows, like, Kita Bala, everything, like, I get weird around that situation, because, you know, me and my ex-girlfriend, it didn't end on good terms, and any time I'm around her, I feel a lot of guilt, shame, and I get kind of despondent, because... You know, like I was cheating or whatever, and I feel very guilty right. to be around her, and it, it, ma- it makes me uncomfortable. Like a lot of people around their exes, it's an uncomfortable, even if you're good to them, just the sheer fact it, you're, you're broken up, it's awkward. It will change the dynamic of any room if you're around a, an ex. 
But I, I proceed and I walk in and I get taken to a booth with a huge thing of Grey Goose. I'm like, oh, like, you know, I can't afford this. It's like, it's taken care of, sir. I'm like, uh-oh. I'm excited because it's cool. Like, I feel like, I feel like Drake. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, you text me and you're like, Drake's in the building, baby. I was at home watching the basketball game and I saw he was courtside and I knew, Shane, that you were in the share club. And I was like, dude, just so you know, Drake's actually in the building. He'll probably come up to his club and you're going to get to see him. I know. And we were in the... The VIP group. of the VIP? Yes. Wow. We Yes. Yeah, so we were in the VIP of the VIP club. All girls, by the way. And I'm not just saying like, there was a ton of girls. Literally... I'm not exaggerating. I was the only guy in the club <laughs> minus a DJ and some guy who kept going up to talk to the DJ who seemed like he worked there. Okay. It must have been some special night where they just got all these hot babes, bottle <laughs> service, like the nut maybe like hooked everyone up, all of his cool friends or whatever. Every young lady is looking at me in the club and my girlfriend's like, every girl is looking at you. The second I go to the washroom, you're going to get swarmed. So I'm like, well, uh, drink up, baby. Because like, <laughs> I want her to go take a pee because I want to see if this is actually going to happen. Because <laughs> this has never happened to me, by the way. Like, so, you, so you're sitting there. You're in this VIP club. It's all women. You're the only man on a planet of women. They're all looking at me. And they're not doing that thing where they kind of glance. And look away, and then you're like, oh, maybe she likes me. They're doing that thing that never happens where they just, you know, creepy guys will just stare. And they'll maintain at, eye at, contact. And really attractive girls will just stare, and it's like, this guy's a weirdo. But they're all doing that to me. <laughs> like, all of them. And it's very obvious. So I'm like, this is awesome. This is awesome. <laughs> it's the weirdest thing that's ever happened to me in my entire life. And, like, this is how uh, my girlfriend gets treated every day because she's, like, a blonde typical looking club girl, right? So she gets treated like that everywhere she goes. But for me, this is a very foreign experience. Anywho, she gets up to go to the washroom. So I'm like, this is going to be interesting. Like, what's going to happen? All the girls start waving at me, and they're like, want me to come over and chat to them. What? The minute your girlfriend goes the to the second, bathroom? Because the way I'm dressed and the place I'm at, they Can don't. they don't think my girlfriend's my girlfriend. They think she's some disposable arm candy who just is lucky enough to be... Your date for the night. My date for the night. And, you know, maybe they can get a taste of the sweet life <laughs> that I can provide for them with my, my bank account that's probably very big because that'd be the only reason I'd be at this club. Then, and, and it starts out me kind of making fun of this scenario. And then I get, like... The sliders, by the way, are not coming at all like and i've had nothing to eat like these like oh yeah it's like slider city there shaney boy don't worry there's like three sliders and they get taken up by all the, the girls the girls are eating all the sliders. i never get any food i'm feeling kind of crazy i'm feeling kind of cocky i keep like going to the washroom and like you know girls like slapping my butt and stuff and i'm like you be nice and like you know i'm just i'm just being like i've become the douche like it's it was insane. Like, I'm telling you, it was the nuttiest experience. And then I see <laughs> your ex-girlfriend. I see my ex-girlfriend. And I'm feeling like, like I've never felt before. Like, I'm like euphoric, but I'm like, oh, I'm like. And as a lot of people know who know me close, 
like maybe five people know. Like I've been like planning on writing her a letter and I've actually written one in my iPhone notes. So then I'm thinking, what better time than maybe just go say something. Say something. Oh my goodness. Basically every like for the last couple years, I'll think of like, oh, that'd be a, that's good to throw in like a little apology letter, yeah. biding my time. And I'll put it in my iPhone notes. Like I do this with jokes and other things also, creative ideas. But I was trying to formulate something and send it to kind of like smooth things out. But then I, I kind of walk over and I chicken out and I kind of like, I get despondent and I'm drunk and I'm, so I'm just kind of like standing near her. Oh, geez. And I'm not doing anything. And all of her <laughs> friends, like, yeah, this is a nightmare, Mike. This oh is an absolute goodness. nightmare. And then, and all of her friends are just like, is that your like weird ex-boyfriend who like, is like probably the worst boyfriend you've ever had in your life. And she's like, yeah. And it's like, I'm. I, you can hear this. No, I can only imagine. And I guarantee I'm deadly accurate. Sure. But I can only imagine. So in your defense, you're, you weren't hovering to be a creep. You were trying to make amends, but then mm-hmm. lost your nerve at the last second. Yeah, and, but I was still, like, it is creepy. I'm not saying it's not creepy. It's a weird thing to do. And you'd have to know me really well to understand it. Anyway, I wake up. Boom. Just, I'm in my bed. No one's really? in my bed with me. Uh-oh. I'm like, hello. I'm all, this my drunk screaming. <laughs> and then... Uh, my girlfriend's in the other room, and then she was like, oh, last night was just bad. But then, luckily, it got over with very quick, and then we found out that Drake was actually in our booth after... Because I had to leave... By the way, this all transpired between 7 and 9. <laughs> I was in bed by 9.30. <laughs> like, this isn't Before like... Before so- the basketball game was over, you were sleeping. Yes. I had no clue to the score, nothing. There's photos of Drake in our booth talking to the girls that were looking at me photos with him if i had stayed an hour longer i would have had photos with drake and had this awesome experience but yeah i'm a effing idiot on this night but luckily any other girlfriend might have just dumped me or hated me for a week or something but your current girlfriend was understanding fine fine about it like she was understanding but she had known that i was like writing a thing anyway so i think that helped Right, but she was she bitter that she missed Drake. That's a hard one to get over. Uh, I think she was just bitter that she had me as a boyfriend. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. That's all. That's our episode. Thank you for listening to the Mike and Much podcast. All of our artwork is done by Jenna Gregory at jennasdoodles.com. You can follow us at Mike on Much on Instagram and Twitter. The Mike on Much podcast is produced by Max Kerman, and I am your host, Mike Veerman. See you next week if we don't die on the weekend.